0: Let's say that the smartest, sexiest, and most beautiful soul on the planet is waiting for you at the opposite end of a long haul. Now, in order to get there, you need to travel half the distance. But when you're halfway there, you'll still need to travel half that half distance. Now, if you keep on having that distance, half of half the distance becomes one-quarter of the distance, and half of that becomes one-eighth the distance. Here is a quick audio example. The, the Fox, Fox ate eggs, ate for, eggs for lunch. Eggs for lunch. Eggs for lunch. Slush. In measuring out halves, you discover quite quickly that you never actually get to the end at all. This is what's known as the dichotomy paradox, and you can blame a Greek philosopher named Zeno for all this. Now, what if a 900-page novel did this? And what if this novel not only applied the dichotomy paradox, but also the golden ratio? And, just for the hell of it, what if this novel also decided to set the action in 1865 and in 1866, but aligned character temperament to astrological signs and planets? And, on top of that, what if this novel also manipulated massive strands of storytelling? Well, you'd have a novel forming almost an alternative astrology beneath the astrological structure. A novel not only challenging reader assumptions, but the way in which we view and judge other souls. This is precisely what Eleanor Catton's Booker Prize-winning novel, The Luminaries, has managed to do. My name is Edward Champion, and this is The Bat Segundo Show, and I met with Eleanor Catton during a recent trip she made to New York. Okay, so I am here with Eleanor Catton, who was most recently the author of The Luminaries. Eleanor, it's a pleasure to have you. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. Thanks for
0: inviting me. Thanks for being here. Um, so I want to get right down into something kind of crazy. It is rumored that when John Barth wrote... Giles Boy. he had this chart that was taped to his wall in which he listed all the tasks that a hero must accomplish. He took this from Joseph Campbell's The Hero of a Thousand Faces. Uh, and this chart determined the course of the novel. So since you have also worked out astrological charts for your characters, I was curious how familiar you were with Barth, first and foremost, and to what degree does an overly planned structure restrict narrative possibility or possibly, in this sense, uh, allow for all sorts of manifold possibilities of these mighty twelve.
1: Huh? That's a really interesting question. I'm actually not familiar with Bath oh, okay. at all, but I am familiar with Joseph Campbell. Yes. That, his uh, the, "The Hero with a Thousand Faces" yes. had a huge impact on me when I read it. Um, I, I, I suppose about five or six years ago now, yeah. and really shaped the way that I that I see narrative. I mean, it's it's a curious kind of thing because on the one hand, you know, it, it might seem as though having a kind of a structure in place or a, a pattern in place would be restricting yeah. or constraining. But um, my experience actually was, you know, that, that the the pressure of having to conform to the pattern actually enabled me to, to start thinking creatively about how I could best use it to my advantage, you know. Yeah. So it actually, it provided the box, you know, out of which, you know, that kind of think outside the box, you know... Um, Saying it kind of, uh, you you need a box first <laughs> yeah. in order to be able a to think outside box, of it. <laughs> a, uh, <laughs>
0: what kind of box are we talking about here? How rigid would a, a box like this be? How rigid were these charts? I mean, how does does a an actual flow help you to tilt the characters in in the right direction? I mean, uh, you know, you, you can't have things uh, too strict because uh, then you can't really have the kind of natural organic flow of sentences, and especially when you have style on top of that, which I'll get into that in a bit. So,
1: Well, um, the way that it works in the luminaries is that um, uh, all of the characters are each representative of one of the um, um, figures in the zodiac. So you've got uh, 12 signs of the zodiac, first of all, 12 constellations, and then you've got uh, seven planets, um, put quote marks around planets because it includes the sun and the moon. It's re- really they 're the, the bodies that are visible to the naked eye in the sky, um, and the ways in which these these characters they are characters in the book move and interact with one another and influence one another is all patterned on actual star charts so um, you know the the book begins with, for example, the sun and Capricorn. And the character who at this point is kind of playing the archetype of the sun is okay. interacting in this part of the book with the character whose who's temperament conforms loosely to a Capricorn temperament, you know. Um, and so in a way um, I was uh, restricted by the, the 12 days on which the book appears. Yeah. The, 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 the uh, planetary placements were fixed for those 12 days. And... Um, and I had to make the plot be interesting and meaningful kind of around those positions.
0: You had tonal restrictions as opposed to hard plot restrictions.
1: Right. Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, of course, um, I chose those days quite deliberately. Yeah. And um, long before I'd ever written anything, had been studying the, 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 the movement of the planets over, um, well, I should say across the... Uh, Twelve signs of the zodiac over the course of a few years, so I could I kind of knew which year was going to best suit narrative yeah. purposes, you know. Uh,
0: okay. So, so you kind of knew that you could backtrack to 1865 if you needed to, right? Or, or, or did you plan on that in advance? Uh,
1: I think that that was actually there from quite early on. Okay. That, that that movement back, yeah. yeah. Um, just because the book's a murder mystery, it begins just after you know a a, a potential murder, a possible murder. And as most murder mysteries do, it ends up going forward in order to track back, you know, and then kind of... Return the reader to the what what they really have been wanting to see from the very beginning.
0: Yeah, well, there's also this fascinating tension near the end of the book where it flits between 1866 and 1865 and back again, and then you have this tension between the chapter descriptions and the chapters themselves. I mean, I was reading the descriptions and I was almost thinking, well, this could be pulled from some astrological newspaper column or something. Uh-huh. Um, but well, there are numerous questions that you answer. I mean, some, such as the identity of a murderer, and I'm going to do my best not to give anything away, remain very murky. There's this sense that no amount of description at this point in the book can be adequate enough to kind of get inside the heads of these characters. So I'm wondering, you know, do you, first of all, actually know everything that happened? And second, you know, did you set any priorities on what you wanted to reveal to the reader and what you didn't, out of, out of curiosity? I mean, how much oh, of this did you know? that is
1: imagine? interesting, yeah. Um... I th- I'm pretty sure I know everything that happened. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, Including the, the head bashing. <laughs> yes, I think that we, yeah, we probably couldn't talk about that on air, <laughs> and, uh, with for fear of spoilers. Yeah. But um, yeah, um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the second part of the question. Well, it was more um, about
0: what you de- how you decided what to reveal to the reader uh, and what you right. didn't.
1: Well, I think that um, in writing mystery. Yeah. Um, You've, it's my experience of it was almost, uh, you know, like being the conductor of an orchestra when you've got everybody's line of um, everybody's stave, you know, in front of you in this big master sheet. And I realised uh, in the writing of the book that I needed to control the reader's in- intelligence in quite a different way than than. Uh, than as usual, I suppose. Control the um, reader's
0: intelligence, how so? I mean, well, what, what I, are you su- talking here? I
1: suppose I was using the word intelligence in the 19th century okay. sense of just um, knowledge. Because um, that, the that sense would be of, quite um, a thief. <laughs> yeah, so... And what do you do um, besides pulling rabbits out of your hat? <laughs> um, and so, you know, if you imagine these, these parallel kind of tracks of music going along. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, you've got the, what, what the reader knows. Um, on the second hand, on, on you know the next line down, you've got what the reader wants to know, um, which which you can manipulate by, you know, feeding in you know, various teasers and coaxings and, and and so on and so forth. Then you've got obviously what you know, but the reader doesn't yet know, and that that's shaping your narrative quite a bit as well because you're um, uh, putting into the narrative um, various foreshadowings and and clues that then will be exciting on a second reading for the reader, but probably not meaningful on a first reading. Um, And and last of all, you've got um, the kind of most exciting track, which is all of the things that the reader doesn't yet know that they want to know, but you're going to try and make them want to know it.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, how do you know what the reader wants to know? I mean, even if you are the most fluid and variegated reader on this planet, what you think the reader is going to want to know. What, what is going to be of interest to you is not necessarily going to be of interest to another reader. I mean, is, is there any or is there any reliable way to zero the needle for the average reader here at all? Or did you do you have a multiple? Uh, do you have a considerable army of uh, readers who can help you pinpoint that particular um, desire?
1: I think that um, you know, I, I think that mystery is actually a, a, a genre that is. Pretty fundamental. Yeah. Um, we all want to know solutions to things. We all want closure. We all want um, the answer, you know. And um, what a mystery novel does is um, open up a whole bunch of mysteries at the very beginning, um, in a way that is seductive. Ho- hopefully, if the book's um, if the book's engaging, and then um, s- solves those mysteries in a way that's a little bit. Uh, maybe comes a little bit before or a little bit after what the reader is going to be guessing ahead to, you know. So um, there's kind of a... When I I talk about what the reader wants to know, it has to do with engaging with the mystery. Yeah. You know, so in The Luminaries, for example, um, when the book begins, uh, a prostitute in the town is discovered... um, Lying drugged in the middle of the thoroughfare, yeah. right? And um, when she wakes up in jail, she's arrested for public insentience. And when she wakes up in jail, she discovers that enormous fortune has been stitched into the the her, the insides her of her it, gown, yeah, into her clothing, yeah, into her gown. Um, and so that's a mystery. And I'm kind of just trusting, I guess, as a writer, that that a reader will think, well, that's a bit curious. Yeah. That's never happened to me. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder. I wonder what. What the reason for that is?
0: Well, this is interesting because there has been this interesting critical tension among literary types where, you know, a lot of them have gravitated towards genre in an effort to get readers, and some genre readers get understandably huffy because a lot of them don't have the understanding of genre, Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet at the same time, you know, you have interesting books such as Hari Kunzri's Gods Without Men, such as your book, that toy with the notion of genre while simultaneously respecting it. And I'm wondering, is genre for you sort of the best way to contend with uh, what a reader covets in terms of mystery, in terms of how you can even advance the literary form? If you have a massive framework, as you do with the astrological charts, is that enough to transcend genre and produce a completely new form of literature?
1: oh that's an, that's an interesting thought well i mean i I would really like to see a breakdown between um genre, like the categories of genre and literary fiction yeah. um, I think that um genre fiction is nearly always lively, and literary fiction at its worst is not lively at all yeah. um, i mean it's at its best it's it's um you know many, many things that 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 genre fiction <clears throat> is not. Or, 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 or tends not to be, you know. Um, but I, I take a lot of my inspiration, actually, from children's literature. Oh, yeah. Um, which I, I, I see every work of of literature for children as a mystery. Oh. I think that they have much in common with, um, with all kinds of genre fiction, actually. Yeah. Um, but uh, engaging with... Um, very, very weighty philosophical issues, you know, yeah. the the problem of growing up, the problem of being, feeling betrayed and growing up, you know. That children um, are quite
0: receptive to as well. In right. in many sense, they are the best readers.
1: <clears throat> right. Yeah. Well, that's the, yeah, I, I agree. And I, and that's the other thing that I really like about children's literature is that there's no, um, there's no room for showboating or yeah. for self-indulgence on the writer's part because the children will just see it coming a mile away and they won't, I won't read the book. (laughs) Uh
0: So, you are trying to get away from anything you see as self indulgence, that any kind of self indulgent, quote, self indulgent impulse would be in the framework itself, in the structure. That's where you get it out, and you are able to use that to both woo the reader while simultaneously avoid the pretentious card. Is that safe to say?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that a a book should be for the reader's pleasure, you know, and I think that. That, and for the rea- and pain, you know, yeah. like for the reader's experience, and um, it's not a it's not a self-aggrandizing exercise, and it's I, yeah I don't know like I when I when I read I the the most powerful um, responses I have to to works of literature are always to the characters and the um, the, the the dramas that are happening within the story. Yeah, um, I've, I don't think I've ever had a. Um, a fictional experience where I've I've read a novel and thought gosh this novelist I really want to be like this novelist oh.
0: you So know? <laughs> you don't really see uh, voice at least from the author's standpoint as a qualifier for quality fiction or, or what? I mean how do you respond to like I guess like a voicey writer like say Will Self or um, you know someone who just uh, or Anthony Burgess or someone who just you know oh well it's definitely this kind of it's definitely going to be this book. Or, or do you feel that um, that style needs to be shaken up with each new project? I, David I, Mitchell certainly feels like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I would... Um, yes, definitely, um, to the the style question. I, I'm frequently a little bit befuddled by the distinction between voice and style, actually, as it's frequently yeah. made. Um, the... I don't know, there's, there's something about the the ventriloquism or the supposed ventriloquism of voice that um, that bothers me in a way I don't know like I think I think there's probably a lot of voice-driven novels that I can think of yeah. that that I adore
0: <laughs> is is um. it is it parody that uh, you find to be a cheap trick I mean how do you transcend that I mean you're you're also in this case Uh, mimicking a Victorian novel to a large degree. And even in the rehearsal, you're employing stage directions to convey uh, this very strange tension between the two schools. So, I mean, style is definitely something for you, but um, I don't think it's ventriloquism. But, I mean, I'm wondering, how is it new? How do you make it new? How do you make it new enough to satisfy uh, not falling for the ventriloquist racket that you are identifying here?
1: Right, Well, I think that what originality is, is bringing together of two elements that don't belong together, like at a very, uh, you know, at at the most atomic level, you know. It's just putting things, it's making connections that don't yet exist um, between words, between ideas, between approaches. Um, And so I think that that's, you know, uh, individual styles... Always come out of some sort of fusion of two or more unlikely elements. You yeah. Know? Um, yeah. Bringing bringing things into a, a context where they um, where they're not uh, germane.
0: Yeah. Conceptual blending, uh, endless association. I mean, what I mean, what what would you describe as a as an acceptable minimum form of association for you that would satisfy you to say, well, okay, I am doing something different. I am venturing out into the fields, and I am going to go ahead and find a different caribou
1: <laughs> i don't i don't really know what i'm going to do next um i it, it's really important to me not to repeat myself and so i've yeah. kind of sworn i've i've made myself to um i've counted the number uh, of these
0: you've used in some kind of conversation oh, <laughs>
1: yes.
0: i keep it a running tab in my head right now
1: <laughs> I've, I've made myself two pacts um one is that i never want to write two books that are similar over yeah. the course of my career it's in, you know, in the future. And the second thing is that I never want to write a novel about uh, a writer. <laughs> I think I think that <laughs> or an there artist are, or a musician or or a kind of musician, yeah the, yeah, the stand-in writer. Right. Huh.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, you you came kind of close there with the rehearsal because you do have <laughs> a number of uh, students who are um, <laughs> who are studying uh, acting and studying music. And, and oh, that's true. Do you, do yeah, you think that you've got a, a good deal of your, I suppose. Um, because I think of the sax teacher in that, and I think of some of the weird instructions about, you must go ahead and go out into the world and live and, and have rampant sex with people in order to actually physically understand your body. And that notion uh, is almost as like kind of like weirdly didactic. Do you think you got a lot of the sort of, I guess, explicit morality stated by characters out with that novel, and how have you avoided it since?
1: Yeah, that's well I think yes, you know, um, because so much of the rehearsal takes place in a stage environment or like a theatrical um, space, uh, I, was, I had no access to their inner lives really, because yeah. I was wanting to play with the idea of performance and what could be seen and assumed and put on. Um, and so what that meant was that the characters had to speak very declaratively. They had to conjure the reality that they were going to then inhabit as actors um, in the same way as, um, you know, all all theatre that is um, not reliant on a, a realistic-looking set. Yeah. Um, is, always does that and has done that, you know, from, from the very beginning. Um, and so, yeah, and so I think that the... Partly for that reason, um, the book has a very didactic kind of tone. And I think the other thing, actually, um, that, that partly explains uh, that, that thread in the book is that um, I was much younger when I wrote it yeah. and much more agonistic, I think, in the way that I was thinking. And um, the injustices of the world, particularly around... Um, feminist performance theory and yeah. lesbian pe- feminist performance theory that was really driving my thinking at that time, uh, the injustices were just they, they I was feeling them and kind of um, the being enraged by them in a in quite a different way than I um, feel now um, my've just i 've matured a bit, I, I suppose sure. in my um, my My thinking's a little bit more meditative and a little a little less um, reactionary well, I mean, how do you
0: deal uh, with the dawning sense, especially in our present world as as it continues to go interestingly into the toilet frighteningly so I mean how do you deal with you know having to take on i suppose a partial responsibility to reflect the social and the political world around us I mean we're trying to make sense of truth and reality through fiction so if you got a lot of this out with the first one as I suspect that you did um, you know how does this trick of trying to find an original style by vivid association multifarious association allow you to really grapple with, with the world you think that that um, you, I mean, is it safe to say right now that you're 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 going to take this on as an additional responsibility at all, or, or you're going to try to reconcile this, or is this just not what you think a novelist should do? I'm just curious.
1: Well, I think that um, it's absolutely important. I mean, it's absolutely vital, I should say, that a novelist believes what their novel believes. Yeah. You know, I think that the, fiction is curiously revealing. Um, and you, I learned this, um, have learned this many times over as a creative writing teacher. Just how um, you know, it's it's like reading somebody's dreams yeah. essentially. You're it, you, you're really getting a window into this, a very clear window into um, all sorts of values and and um, prejudices and biases that the writer has. You know, even if they're not aware of the, the fact that they're displaying them, they um, they they're usually there to be read. You know. Um, and so I think that that you know uh you have to be able to stand by, behind the the consciousness of your work and um have to have grappled in some way in some meaningful way with um with the ideas that that are driving um the kind of the the works uh uh project i suppose but as to what those questions might be and what those ideas might be, I think that that's up to up to anybody. Yeah. You know. Um, I mean, we've there there are mysteries that have have uh, defined the human condition since you know since we were humans. Yes. Um, and we we haven't figured out the answers to them. You know, there's no reason why somebody can't today write a. Novel, which asks the question, "What are we? What's going to happen when we die?" Yeah, because we don't. Nobody knows the answer to that question, and actually, being uh, asking that question in the modern world is will is going to yield quite a different struggle than asking it thirty or forty years ago. Yeah, you know. So, um, yeah, I just I, I think that it's it's really important to be, um, kind of, I, an idealist actually as as a fiction writer, and to, to know what those ideals are and to, to to be able to see the, how they are transmitted into the work. Um, not, not necessarily at all in a didactic way, actually, that, quite the opposite of that. Sure. Um, but as, as in an animating way, I suppose.
0: If you are an idealist, if a novel is an essay, so to speak, uh, the ideas and the consciousness that you have thought about, that you have put into place, will be strong enough to evolve to a point where it will possibly be able to inhabit some of the concerns that I have just mentioned in my last question and to simultaneously avoid the great curse of didacticism is that safe to say I
1: think so yeah, yeah. I think so I mean I think that if you're if you're really truly struggling with a with with something then you won't be content with with an answer you'll only be content with a question yeah um and you know for, for me the I, you know, I, I think that the, although the the rehearsal is, uh, I think that for me the, the rehearsal is not. I, I I'm I'm not sure if I would call it a um, a didactic novel in the sense that, I if it is being didactic, I don't quite know what it's saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that it's it's uh, agonistic in the way that it it's asking questions. If it's a moral soup, um, it has
0: a mystery meat.
1: I like that. Yeah, and um, and and so I think that it's for a novelist especially. It's much more important to know what questions you want to ask than to know what answers are going to come up for that question, because in in a sense the fiction is the answer. It's the um, it's your way of 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 uh, teasing out these ideas. animating them in a fictional theatre kind of seeing um, seeing how far you can push them maybe you know, depend, depending, on the, depending on the work yeah, um, yeah.
0: Well, you, we, I want to go back to the Luminaries and talk about the idea of working with hard antecedents as you did as you specified earlier I mean this novel I think you know, on its face and also through this conversation it really is quite open with reader expectations. I mean, you have the corpse of Crosby Wells. uh, In the first half of the book, I mean, it suffers this tremendous concatenation of disgraces. I mean, people go into the cottage. They go ahead and use the stove. They allow the corpse to sit there. They want to buy the cottage. It's really quite tremendously uh, disgraceful (laughs) what happens to poor Crosby Wells in that. Uh, I felt very sorry for him. But then you've got someone like Francis Carver, who was almost uniformly monstrous. I mean, we don't really know, until we do know, because you play around with the notion of Wells, um, whether or not he has any kind of uh, humanity or anything beyond the criminal past that caused him to go astray. Uh, and then, you know, with Anne Weatherall and Lauderback, uh, we get to see them from several different sides. So as a result, they become more fluid. Um, but simultaneously, you know, you also have with Emery Staines... I mean, with him, quite frankly, I didn't know how to feel for him. I didn't know... I couldn't feel... I couldn't love him or hate him. I, I understood that he was kind of this tabula for the for the grand uh, narrative. But at the same time, I, I... And I asked my partner, who also read your book, you know, what, what, did you feel anything for every states? Like, am I alone here? Like, no, I, I didn't either. So, uh, this creates uh, an issue, or rather an, a point of interest, in that um, none of these characters... Um, are going to have the fluidity of, say, uh, a dimensional, or, or a different kind of dimensional, or hard realist novel. Um, you're you're going to have to put these characters to the astrological charts, you're going to have to play with these assumptions, and I'm wondering, you know, um, did you ever fret over this, or did you simply accept this structural inevitability?
1: Well, um, a lot of fretting, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know the well. The characters you just mentioned are all the the, the kind of the movers and drivers of the plot. Yeah. The 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 planets in the astrological scheme, um, and uh, Carver works with, uh, you know, Lydia Wells, a woman later his wife, um, in as a kind of a uh, a veteran blackmailing yeah. duo, you know, um, and.
0: Is that a common trope in New Zealand uh, history?
1: No, not New Zealand history. Yeah. I I just really liked it actually from adventure stories. I liked oh, yeah. I liked the the idea of the the um, dastardly duo, sure. you know, kind of working together. He does not actually um, spit
0: his mustache, however. So <laughs> he does have a um, wonderful scar, but
1: <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and I think that he, you know, it, it, it's it's always interesting for my experiences. It's always interesting to hear other people um, talk about their affections for the characters that you create um, or their lack of affection because I have enormous affection for oh, all sure. of them. And so it's quite difficult to, to, I, I don't know. It's, it, it, well, you it's, were saying yeah. earlier that you
0: knew exactly <laughs> what the reader would want, so I figured it was a fair <laughs> game.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, in the case of um, Carver, you know, the book, the book really needed a, a brooding, yeah. a menacing... Uh, center um, and he needed to be um, enough of a counterpoint to Shepherd, the jailer, in the sense that um, Shepherd kind of represents the menace inside the law, yeah. or as he would put it the civil uh, on the civil side of the question, whereas Carver's on the savage side of the question he's um, he's uh, um, he he makes the rules for himself and is not above. Um, you know uh murder as as shepherd is not either, but um shepherd's shepherd's dastardly acts are kind of um uh, happening from within a, uh, a system that 's already granted him authority sure um uh, just because of his position in the town um, yeah, so I think that i mean it was it was kind of an it it probably comes back to genre fiction actually that there's always this this um a figure of of carver's type, you know the and Wilkie Collins is the woman in white it's yeah. count Fosco you know this is like this completely villainous um, um, unctuous person you know just well, um, actually uh, Gilbert Osmond and the portrait of a lady was very much in my mind oh. when I was um, when I was writing this I could, I just I, I feel he's, he's not at all like Carver in his in particulars but in the way that he is just such a loathsome presence in the book. Yeah. Um, and by the end, you just, you are wishing such terrible oh, yeah. things upon him, you know.
0: But I mean, at the same time, I, I kind of wanted to know the seed of corruption because every villain is generally human enough for you to, first of all, develop a very healthy sense of empathy, but second of all, why did they go wrong from whence the incorrigible part and 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 you didn't do that with this i mean except that you kind of did but you you really have you really wanted to make the reader work for it in the sense that if you want to understand carver you have to okay once there's that revelation you have to then go back and say oh well jesus now who is who uh, is this the guy is this guy the guy you know what i mean so so playing with that idea while simultaneously being fulfilling for the reader i'm wondering if it's if it's um If it's good enough to to convey, if if it's fair enough for Carver, you know what I mean? I mean, especially since, you know, he he has to be human on on some level. So, you know, I think that's the question I'm curious about.
1: Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Well, my my intention with the seven planetary characters um, is that if you read the book from each of their points of view, like if you kind of try and get inside the book and see it as they experienced it, you're going to see seven very different stories. Yes. Obviously, if you look at it from Anna and Emery's point of view, it's a love story. Yes. Um, with a fairly happy ending, actually, but though it's a bit happier for for one of them than the other. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's and, a hell of a happy ending. My goodness. <laughs> and um, uh, for Moody, it's a detective story, really, because he's he he is the, the 13th man who comes, you know, gate crashes this um, party, the circle of 12, and essentially... Yeah. Um, steps into the role of figuring out the mystery or of of helping them to um, arrive at a, a you know a, a, a plausible uh, though not necessarily true um, interpretation of events um, for the um, for Shepherd and uh, Lauderback who played uh, Saturn and Jupiter respectively it's a it's a story of um of, of uh, family connections, and kind of it's a revenge story really for both of them I think, um, about trying to escape their past. Um, brothers figure into both of their their, their personal stories, um, um, their relationship with their fathers um, figure in, um, and uh, and then murder and revenge figure into both stories too, and, and blackmail. Um, but then, lastly, if you look at it from uh, Carver and Lydia Wells's point of view, who are the uh, Venus and Mars uh, characters, um, they, you know, in, in a sense, that they've got the tragic story because theirs is, the, theirs is the story with the truly bad ending. Yeah. Um, where they end up with nothing and with all of their best laid plans having, you know, gone awry. Um, so I, I, I've, I've got a, an affection for them because of that. Because there's something, I think that there's something very sad about a sad ending. <laughs> you can
0: sympathize with any character, no matter how dastardly they are, who goes through hell, as as these two did. Right. Okay, that makes sense. I was also curious, because much of the digging in this book is actually offstage. Uh-huh. And there's no mention of Gabriel Reed or Gabriel's gully. Uh, Hokitika is that how you say it? Yeah, I got it right. Thank goodness. This actually becomes a hotbed for the gold rush in late 1866, which is actually after the events of this novel. Right. Um, you know, you have skillfully avoided the great din of prospectors hitting this territory. And I'm wondering, was the idea here to avoid the historical tropes and the cliches, you know, because typically when you read a historical novel, it's like you have the obvious greatest hits moments, like, okay, here is Gabriel Reed, and he's going to find Gabriel's gully. Or, hey, uh, you know, there's gold in them hills, and then everybody rushes in. Or was this actually a very... Coy and creative way, method on your part of avoiding a lot of research. I'm, I'm wondering around <laughs> this.
1: I, do, I did do quite a bit of research um, in writing this book, actually, but I was anxious, kind of, you know, to to wear that research as lightly as I could. Um, How
0: much research did you um, accumulate? What did you research?
1: Well, I, I read a lot of the newspapers of the time. Actually, there's a wonderful archive, um, courtesy of the National Library of New Zealand, ah. where all of the um, all of the newspapers from basically from from the very beginning of yeah. New Zealand's history are all are all up online and there to be read so I was able to read a lot of the Hokitika papers and of that time you know I began on the 27th of January 1866 and, and read the papers for a while wow. and um and it was really helpful in all sorts of ways you know to f- to find out what what the people at the time were eating what the what the ships were bringing in um um, the, the ways in which people were trying to make contact with with prospectors who had gone missing. The first draft um, of history
0: aided your first draft,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I, I did read a few books of history as well, but I was, I really uh, don't, uh, you know, respect very much that what what you called the greatest hits version yeah. of a historical novel. Um, uh, I, I've been for a while now. I've been calling it the Forest Gump effect. You know, you, uh, yeah, that's a good you one kind too. of have to. Uh, if if your novel is, you know, happening in, um, I don't know, the 1930s, yeah. then there's certain boxes that you're going to have to tick because they're all these things that we all know that happened in the 1930s. Bread lines
0: and all that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know,
1: and the the problem I have with this is that I don't think that that's at all how human lives are shaped. You know, if I think that if you and I were to tell one another our life stories in 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 great detail. We probably wouldn't. I mean, there would be there would be some um, world events that are so um, there's so much of a seismic shift that that they would come into the narrative. Um, but probably, I mean, presidents and yeah. you know, um, prime ministers. In my case, you know, like that that, that probably wouldn't they wouldn't figure in. You know, um, I probably wouldn't. Tell you where I was on the day that Princess Diana died, for example. Um, but in a well, greatest um, something <laughs> naughty happened that day. Not at all, <laughs> no. But and you know, in a greatest hits yeah. historical novel, Everyone not, seems to have um, that
0: historical associative memory, when in fact right. most people in real life probably can't remember, or if they do remember, it's only because everybody else was talking about it, like September 11th or something.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. So I think, it, you know, it's 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 important to. Um, remember as well that I've, uh, a novel is not a, a book of history. Yeah. And it's a it's a human story. It's 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 a drama. You know, essentially.
0: This is hilarious because before I actually came here, Rob Ford just confessed that he had actually <laughs> he had done crack cocaine in drunk in, in in during drunken stupors. And today is also election day after I talk with you, I have to go vote. So we're about to elect a brand new mayor after of 12 course. years of Bloomberg, yeah. which only goes to show how little it matters, even though it does matter. <laughs> um, that's interesting. I Actually, I mean, I want to go back to this uh, using newspapers as a method of uh, getting voice. I mean, you know, obviously this is going to be very helpful for style, possibly more so, but I did want to actually ask you about uh, the way you use damned, where it's dashed out. Um, there's also... Um, You know, the books coin is actually uh, allows you to postpone a very important question concerning Anne Weatherall's fate, which finally we reveal, like, oh, okay. But for a while there, was like, okay, how did she make the transformation? Um, But there's also, this is also a very interesting irony because, well, there's a lot of savage and monstrous behavior of the characters, uh, most prominently seen in the moment where Carver insults Lowenthal, a newspaper man, in his own office. Um, You know, I'm wondering what you took away from newspapers and how this affected, um, I suppose, the the cloaked, um, coiled way of presenting uh, this massive narrative while simultaneously uh, also being true to some of the uh, not-so-pleasant stuff that also pops up.
1: Right. Um, Well, actually, one of the ways in which the newspapers were incredibly helpful to me is that they, um, you know, know, of course they were the Internet of their day. You know, this is the middle 1860s, and absolutely everything in the town was funnelled through the paper, because it was the, the, the one thing that everyone was reading, you know. Um, and uh, one of the, the really great uh, things that I discovered was that every time there was a, a court case in town, both at the magistrate's court, the kind of low-level courts, and also the Supreme Court, when eventually there, there was a murder trial in Hokitika, it was a couple of years later, um... Uh, all of the lawyers' speeches and all of the judges' retorts, and um, all of the descriptions of the people in the dock and the atmosphere of the room, is was all written out in full, mm-hmm. and so it was really helpful to me because I had a um, you yeah, have a courtroom scene um, later on in the book, and was able to learn quite a lot about how how it all worked, you know, mm-hmm. um, just because my understanding of what happens in courtrooms is so um, colored by um, American television and obviously the, um, all that <laughs> yeah and the American um, legal system it's quite different yeah. yeah we
0: apologize for that import
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's okay um, so do you, yeah. you able to
0: learn about the courtroom almost exclusively from newspapers you're able to learn about legal proceedings is this also the case with the uh, fluidity of money in this because I gotta say I have not read a novel that has managed to Create such fluid cash. I mean, money in this is is as we have established. It's stitched in gowns. It is uh, it is stolen. It is taken. It is pull, put into properties. I mean, and and this really drives the story so well. But yet you're always you're always aware of how the money has changed. Um, did you pick this up from newspapers, too? I mean, I was wondering about where you got that from.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Some of it I made up. Yeah, you know, okay. Um, I, I did discover, I think in a book of history, actually, that um, concealing gold in women's clothing yeah. was quite a common way of smuggling gold off the yes. goldfields so that uh, the people in question uh, would not have to pay taxes on, on the gold as they left. Um, and I really liked that... Um, you know, it, it speaks as well, I think, to the astrological dimension of the book because um, gold is the metal associated with the sun. Each yeah. of the, the seven planets have a metal associated with them. And and um, I kind of like this idea that Anna would be walking around with this kind of internal, um, you know, uh, layer, yeah. um, which she believed was lead because she had stitched lead weights into her um, dress to the um, bottom of her crinoline to prevent it from blowing up put in the wind Yes. As, as was conventional at the time and that the lead had kind of become gold in this kind of al- alchemical way yes um, yeah but I think that you know like I part of it was reading the papers and um, part of it actually was uh, I read a lot of I was reading a lot of mystery like 20th century crime Particularly, kind of mid-century crime writers like, uh, like who which? Uh James M. Cain and um, Raymond Chandler and Graham Greene and and Dashiell Hammett and people like this. And um, I was studying their their books and trying to figure out how m- mysteries really worked. You know, um,
0: trying to reverse engineer um, them.
1: Right. Yeah. And and um, there's this. Uh, this phrase that i I really like, which is the the past the poison um, uh, kind of trope I suppose um, I mean it goes back much further than than the mystery novel, but um the idea that one cup is poisoned and it keeps on kind of being passed from person to person until the reader loses track of yes. of actually which cup is poisoned and i I kind of liked that, put in a in the context of a gold rush, it would be gold that this this fortune kind of Everybody's claim on it keeps on shifting, um, and th- and it keeps on passing from person to person, much in the same way that, um, uh, you know, the, the the planetary bodies pass from constellation to constellation, through, uh, you know, in the in the sky.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, while we're on the subject, I actually wanted to ask you about how you are very concerned, I think, very particular about how your characters speak. I mean, we hear voices raised slightly. We hear voices in specific cadences. We hear voices that were rather shrill. Uh, Balfour, the tone of his voice implied that he did not like Carver, even though his expressed sympathy for the man's possible loss. Lauderback, he spoke loudly, declaring his ambitions and opinions with a frankness that might be called hubristic. These are extraordinarily specific. These harken back to a particular time where we actually did pay attention to voice. And I'm wondering, um... I'm wondering, um... How, what, what, what your interest was here? Why did you think that was important? Was it a sort of uh, subtle suggestion to the reader, hey, pay attention to the tone. You, you may be picking something up. You may not be.
1: <laughs> I think that it plays into, actually, the omniscient third-person narration of the book. Um, there's a, 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 a collective we that comes in um, at various points in the narrative to kind of um, guide the reader's understanding of what's happening, sometimes to talk above um, what characters are saying or sometimes to move away from them and move from scene to scene. And um, I was really interested in... Uh, I am really interested in Omniscient Third Person as, um, as a, a way of telling a story, chiefly because it's fallen so absolutely out of fashion in our recent... Uh, you know, literature or contemporary literature, um, which which I see as uh, being characterized al- almost overwhelmingly by the first person and by the present tense. Um, and f- for me, the I mean, my personal feeling about the first person and the present tense is they they cannot cannot belong together. Oh. That you that you each of them is so limiting. You know the the, the First person is so limiting as in one person's point of view, obviously, and present tense is so limiting because none of us know what's going to happen in ten minutes in the future. So you are kind of really just you are in you are suspended, you are you are doubly suspended in, in a first person present tense book. I think um, in in this kind of you are almost trapped in the narrative moment and um, for me uh, the omniscient third is the complete opposite to that it's, um, it's a it's a voice that has or a point of view that has so much is so elastic um, you can move forward and backward in time as you please you can move from person to person um, you, can, you can really um, uh, exercise as much narrative control or as little narrative control as you like and um, one of the the ways in which it manifests in the novels of the nineteenth century, which use it, is in these very long, extended, and quite um, biting, I think, character descriptions of the kinds that you were, um, you know, reading out. Things. Well, that was merely um, voice,
0: but there are, there are there is quite a deal of uh, particular character description in your book. Yes.
1: Right, and I think that you know the the. The fascination that was driving my my move towards using that voice was actually a fascination with with adverbs oh. and the, ad, the adverbial in general. And, and you're in a different um, century;
0: you can use them,
1: right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you read Henry James, I mean, the adverb is his is basically his favourite part of speech. You yes, know? and. Um, In the kind of witty interchanges of, say, you know, like a Jane Austen novel, and in conversation, so much hangs on the adverb. You know, somebody saying, um, naturally or evidently, or you know, like all the they're quite they can be quite barbed adverbs. Um, And the thing that I really like about about them as a part of speech is that they they slide kind of effortlessly.
0: Leslie. effortlessly <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a
1: nice um, adverb <laughs> angle <laughs> um, effortlessly between the the person who is describing the action and the person who is described so for example if I say that you know lauderback spoke if the book says lauderback spoke with an air of somebody blah 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 and kind of uh, renders him adverbially the only way that the reader is going to be able to trust that adverb is something to, you know, is if if the style of the the novel is kind of extremely decla- declarative and strong, because there is always the sense with adverbs that there's this kind of sliding between the describer and the described. So if I said to you, you know, um, I don't know, you're you're looking at me. Um, you know angrily no I'm not Um, well exactly I Um, I, uh, I must uh, refute that (laughs) but I mean there is no in in that word and angrily there is no um, there's no tension well it's it's, it's unclear I think whether it's to do with uh, whether exactly whether it's to do with my something that I'm seeing in you or something that you're doing is it objective or is
0: it subjective yeah
1: exactly and I don't think that nouns and verbs do that at all Uh. Um, and I think that actually the adverb sits really uneasily with the first person um, and sits really uneasily in the present tense there's because it's It's such a shaping. It's so. uh, It's such a shaping part of speech, and shaped, and kind of sculpted, and belongs more properly in third person, in an omniscient third person narration. I think.
0: So you were interested in reclaiming adverbs and parts of speech to create a completely new tension for the reader in terms of conveying both the subjective and the objective, and also challenging our notion of. Yeah, we do use a lot of nouns and verbs these days. And, and you know, the adverb, I, I mean, yes, is it thorny, of course, especially when you look at it. But when you talk, when you speak it, oh, it's a whole different ballgame. Hmm,
1: that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's curious how um, how much people hate on the adverb yeah. these days, especially in creative writing courses. I, it's especially. Kind of, it's the first thing you learn, I'm right? shocked that
0: you have this attitude coming from Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they went ahead and got a big... Broom and whacked it out of you. you know?
1: <laughs> no, I, I was was a very um, very hands off experience in a way. Um, in many ways, actually, it was very um, very communal, very a very spirited community, and um, it was just it was like all uh, educations, creative educations. You got out of it what you put into it. Yeah. So there really wasn't a sense of anybody trying to push you into a mold.
0: huh. Yeah. You got lucky. (laughs) Um, I read a correspondence that you conducted in the Lumiere Reader with Joan Fleming where you described how you had to confront your own cowardice and the limits of your ability before you could learn to be brave. Well, what was this cowardice? What were these limits? Does it have a lot to do with um, what we're talking about here in terms of language, what you gleaned from newspapers? I'm curious here, Eleanor.
1: (laughs) Well, I think that, um, you know, in in writing the book... uh, The characters that that I was the most cautious about and uh, worried about the most were the characters of colour and I was really firm in my um, desire to give everybody kind of an equal uh, complexity and an an equally interesting story arc and an equally um, uh, complicated inner life. One of the things that really bothers me about a lot of on- ensemble cast stories, particularly t- long-form TV dramas, is how seldom the characters of color are given um, complexity. Yeah. Um, Don't get me started um, on the way
0: The Walking Dead uses black characters. They, they, they appear and then they're dead, <laughs> eaten by the zombies, three episodes later, without actually having any kind of development whatsoever. It's oh, really frustrating. Yeah.
1: yeah, that sounds awful. That's why
0: I probably read books more than watch TV. <laughs>
1: Right, yeah, and anyway, so I, I, I kind of wanted to give everybody a fair deal, yeah. you know, and I wanted to, um, in in a sense, um, uh, subtly criticize, you know, um, the convention of 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 not doing that. Um, Who was
0: the hardest among Asuk and Taware and all that? Out of well, Taufare actually, the, tawhare, ma- the,
1: the the Maori character, um, I think because. You know, New Zealand's a bicultural nation, and um, and the I, I mean, it's it's not at all a there, there, there's a lot of dialogue and conversation um, between the two New Zealand's two halves, you know, and there's a lot of um so there's not not at all a sense of of having to be politically correct in a way that is actually um, insipid you know i don't i don't i think that we're actually quite healthy in the way that we we deal with our biculturalism in new zealand but um at the same time i was made very uncomfortable with the with you know the the prospect of putting words in somebody's mouth which is essentially what you're doing there's one point
0: Um, in the first part i believe where you say well um for the for purposes of economy, we will go ahead and convey what Asu told us amidst all the other events, which was um, interesting because I could also buy this as well. Perhaps the assembled. Throng here is just uncomfortable with the idea of letting Asuk ramble and all that, and and so I'm 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 wondering, you know, did you make efforts to try to really kind of pinpoint that voice? Because I, I I was reading up on the Otago uh, Gold Rush, and I did see that, for example, there was a huge Cantonese immigration um, around that particular time, and so you know, I mean, what, what you know, what how hard did you try to really write in their voice, or was it just simply just. I mean was, is, is it possible for even for any novelist to mimic something that especially since it's like hundred and sixty something odd years later. You know? Oh
1: of course. I mean that's it's a fiction, you yeah. know. And I, I have I have made up a great deal and pulled pulled details in where I as it suited me, you know. One of the main ones being actually that, that on the west coast where my novel is set. Yeah. There was not actually a Cantonese presence at all until about 1868 or 1869. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of pulled them forward a little bit in in time, just because I wanted I wanted to have that interaction in the book. Um, Especially
0: since it's been, it's been swept under the history from what I, from what I could tell, at least through my very very rapid research.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, that's a that is actually a a, a very the New Zealand's treatment of, of of the Chinese yeah. um, beginning in the years of the gold rush and then continuing into the 20th century is one of the very, um, uh, very shameful um, things in our past actually
0: America's got you beat with the Chinese Exclusion Act uh, uh, we had the Chinese laborers come over here to work on the railroad and then basically had the first racist Bill, which prevented them from actually staying here after we had used their labor, after they had lost their lives—it's it's a shameful chapter. I think I think all nations have this, I suppose. Mm. But I, I would challenge you that America is far <laughs> worse than New Zealand on this capacity.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I, 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 I guess you're much you're much bigger. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I, also, I wanted to talk about—I mean, we haven't really talked about the. In a relationship between astrology and capitalism, I'm going to try to do it by pointing to Lydia and her seance. I mean, in a weird way, she is a prospector with the seance because she's anticipating a market. She's anticipating the fact that people are willing to pay more for an exclusive thing. Uh, and yet, you have Mannering calling fortune hunting the lowest form of swindle, uh, putting Lydia to the test, saying, "Give me the winner of next week's races, and I, I'll never doubt again." But the thing is. Maybe the lowest form of swindle is the only way to survive in 1866, and I, and I was wondering, you know, if if um, if that tension between astrology and capitalism. I mean, how did you, um, I mean, how did you arrive at that as, as a form of of uh, exploring uh, this rather dastardly, sinister human emotion?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I think that you know, luck and fate are really interesting concepts. Uh they're essentially they are interpretations that we will reach for um, if it is meaningful to us to do so you know to to feel lucky um to feel like we're unlucky sometimes that's helpful it kind of um, it it kind of uh, affixes our personal experience to some kind of a a sense of a cosmic plan in a way that um can be comforting kind of one way or one way or the other yeah um, but I, I i don't know I, I would say that that i'm fairly suspicious of of those concepts at the same time, especially in the concept in, in the context of capitalism, which very often kind of uh, you know the 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 phrase that's very often used, and from capitalistically minded people, is um, "a man makes his own luck." You yeah. know, and this idea that that in following profit, you you rise above even even luck, even even chance. You are you are kind of um, more of a master, yeah. you know, than than yeah. these than these other uh, kind of inferior forces. Um, the
0: two systems have a lot in common. That's yeah. a, a
1: great deal. Yeah. 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 Um And so, you know, just naturally because I was setting a book in the during the gold rush, I, I wanted to explore the notion of luck and um, also of fate—the idea that, um, um, you know, how the the extent to which we can es- escape ourselves, essentially—and um, well, the extent, the extent to which we make ourselves, you know. always seemed a really strange idea to me that... Um, the, 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 the notion of the self-made man, you know. And especially in the context of a gold field, it seemed extremely strange. That somebody could go to this wild natural environment, pick up a rock from the ground. And that that rock, like that act of picking something up from the ground is natural would then constitute self-making, you know, in the future.
0: It's like going you know? into a strip mall and digging into a bin with a bunch of love beads and calling yourself a self-made <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just so, it's, it's, it was just so interesting to me to kind of yeah. think about those ideas. And um, astrology was kind of brought in uh, to the mix via the word fortune, I think, um, which of course means both a great deal of money and also a, a one's fate, yeah. one's cosmically determined fate, um, often. And so, um, you know, I think I, I think that I was I was I was using I was using that to kind of talk about the promise of of, of riches, um, which Shepard actually uh, the jailer at one point says that um, you know the. The promise of the promise of total reinvention yeah. is actually a promise that's so um, uh, seductive that it doesn't even belong in the civil world, as he terms it. He has this kind of intersection in his mind between the savage and the civil, yeah. and um, for him, it's uh, it's almost a savage thing, you yeah. know. Um, which I which I think is I mean I don't know I, I would say o- over the course of the novel as a whole. Um, the the fortune uh, changes hands so many times, and so many people, different people, touch it, and really nobody is transformed. Yeah, you know, the, the the money doesn't actually have a transformative power at all. I would say that the only characters that are that actually change in the book, um, in a meaningful way, are Anna and Emery, and they change because they fall in love. You know, um, love conquers all. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Like I think that it's. I, th- I don't. I don't actually think that money can transform you. I think that that's the illusion that we all um, have, or that many of us have, that you know, if only I were to win the lottery or yeah. strike it rich, then all of a sudden I'd have great taste and I'd, a lot of people would love me, and and you know. I'd give great parties.
0: There's really not much of a difference between trying to play the lottery at the bodega or the convenience store and going to the wilderness to try to strike it rich. It's actually the very similar desperate impulse, you know? Right. Um, I understand you're a big fan of Douglas Hofstetter's Godel go Escher-Bach. Yeah. So how much of your fiction, since we're on the subject of objects, is driven by an escape from logical contradictions? How can objects or ideas truly call attention to themselves in a worthwhile recursive way within the liminal space of fiction?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. Um, well, you know, Godel Escher-Bach was a really hu- uh, huge influence on me yeah. because uh, loosely the book is about three thinkers. The yeah. mathematician Kurt Godel, um, the painter MC Escher and the musician Bach and about how each of these uh, uh, thinkers was able in their the systems that they created to create what Hofstadter calls a strange loop, yeah. a system that is able to comment upon itself, yes. to, to remake itself potentially, um, to, to kind of gain self-consciousness. And when I first started reading it, I was talking to some friends of mine who are also writers, and we started wondering why it was that there wasn't a writer in that list, in the yeah. name. Why it wasn't Gerd Lesha Bach and then somebody. And Joyce we, or something, um, yeah. Right, well, I mean, Joyce would be a, an interesting pick. And then we started thinking about who, who, who we might... Um, first of all, who we might put there. And what was second, your nomination? Um, <laughs>
0: who was your nomination?
1: Mine was actually Shakespeare, um, but... Uh, You know, mostly for his use of paradoxes that I think paradoxes are kind of a a, a strange loop in a way. Um, And his use of syntactical paradoxes, um, I I would put him in there. But he seems like a bit of an obvious choice. Yeah. Yeah. Joy- Joyce would maybe be an in- more interesting. Maybe uh, that's an interesting
0: obvious interesting. choice too. <laughs> maybe in our quest for loops, we inevitably flock to the greats—the the, huh. I- the instant choices, I suppose. Right. Oh, 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 continue. I'm sorry. Um,
1: yeah, and so anyway, I I became really fascinated with this idea that that you know where the language could be self-referential, and um, uh, started thinking about uh, all of those thinkers and kind of the the beautiful. Uh, the beauty that they'd created um, in in creating these closed loop systems or strange loop systems and around about the same time I started thinking about um, the the golden ratio yeah and why it is that the golden ratio is you know so strongly associated with beauty obviously in 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 uh, physical beauty you know faces that are in golden ratio tend we tend to consider them beautiful um obviously it's also it's a mathematical concept yeah and um and you know and ge- geometric um but also musical in the sense of um you know when you take a string and you have it and um, pluck it again you you get a, a the, the tone that's produced the interval is a yes. fifth you know and so on and so forth. And so all of these... Circle of um, Well, exactly, <laughs> Very yeah. astrological
0: in its own way. Yeah,
1: yeah well, I mean, yeah, well, with 12... Yeah, yeah. 12, um, Twelve
0: nodes diatonic,
1: yeah. Exactly, yeah. And um, so I started thinking about the golden ratio and started thinking, can I use the golden ratio in a piece of fiction? And would it be beautiful if I did so? Um, what is it about uh, visual and oral um, beauty... That kind of lends itself to this this magical number, this yeah. magical ratio and and you know can that be in some way transplanted into fiction um, so all of that was in my mind as kind of a possibility and, it, and just at this time it was kind of like a perfect storm of, of, of reading It was just before I began writing the luminaries actually oh, okay. I, um, I read uh, this most incredible. Uh, book "I and Thou" by Martin Buber. Ah, okay. Um, it's a theological book yeah. where he he talks about um, f- what is for him the ideal relationship, the the most um, respectful and kind of um, honourable relationship, where a person looks at another person and truly sees them as another soul, as a thou, you know, um, kind of using the the informal version of of that word. Um, and uh, anyway, I was—I just absolutely loved this book, and I thought it was—you um, know—it was one of those books that totally cracked my mind open. And I came back to the golden ratio after having just finished Martin Buber's book, and thought, "Hang on a second, this—this this is it." And I took the golden ratio, which um, if you imagine a, a, a rectangle that's in golden ratio, so most doorways are in, in the golden ratio with the short side is in ratio to the long. And also most book covers actually are yeah. in, 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 in golden ratio. Um, and if you call the long side A and the short side B, the, um, the golden ratio is um, A is to B what... I'm sorry, I'll do it the other way around. B is to A what... A is to a plus b. So the short is to the long, what the long is to the whole thing. Yes. Um, and uh, I was thinking about Martin Buber, and I suddenly thought, this is, you know, this is it. And I, instead, I put in the words I and Thou, and I put in that so so the formulation would become I am to you what you are to both of us. And this, for me, just all of a sudden, kind of coalesced as. The way to understand being in love, you know, that um, when you're in love, you say to your partner, I love you, and they say to you, I love you, and you're kind of saying the same thing, and it's, it's a little bit inadequate, you know because when you, you are truly in love with somebody, your selfhood is so mixed up in theirs and you, kind of, you can't quite separate the way that you feel about yourself from the way that they feel about you. Yeah. And um, your memories are tangled up together and all so on and so forth. And the way that the, the golden ratio was able to formulate this, I am to you what you are to both of us, is a, um, you know, it, it creates the golden spiral, this kind of spiraling down into nothing. Um, well, not even into nothing. Like it, it spirals down inf- infinitely, you know. And that seemed to me to be a really nice metaphor for a, a, a human relationship. So, um, the golden ratio has snuck into the, the luminaries. It's the symbol that's actually used as the chapter dividers. Yeah, I did on, notice that. Yeah. yeah. It's on the, um, the cover page as well. And the reason for that was that my initial idea for the book was that I wanted to create a novel where each part was in golden ratio to the next part. So it would create a golden spiral as it went down, and when I did all the maths and tried to figure out what the word counts would be, I came up with a, the. You were going um, to get into
0: the exact word count. Uh,
1: well, um, yes, and uh, well, I came up with a figure that was, a, you know, a little bit longer than War and Peace. So yeah. I was like, I, I, I couldn't <laughs> do that. Um, but then I, my second idea was to um, echo that spiralling thing. By um having each chapter uh, part length be half the length of the one before, which is now what it is in the book, so that that's um, it's not it's not exact but it 's calibrated more or less to um, more or less to word count
0: so this kind of inspirational formalism seems to be both a blessing and a curse in the sense <laughs> that it does in fact limit your ideas, but at the same time it also creates unlimited space that you have to fill <laughs> you yeah, know. I
1: like that yeah. yeah i mean it's um it is both, you know and I think. It, it it does it it does uh, jolt you into a creative space to have, to be painted into a corner, you know. You have to start cre- thinking creatively, like, you know, how the hell am I going to get out of this?
0: <laughs> well, well, um, well. That seems a very good place to end. We have, my goodness, we have been chatting up the storm. Eleanor, it was a great pleasure. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you. That was right. really fun.
0: Fantastic.